Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. and welcome to today's special program of the Commonwealth Club of California. Tonight's program is co-presented by The Nation magazine. I'm Ladaris Cordell, retired judge of the Superior Court of California, former police auditor for the city of San Jose, and your moderator for this program. 2015 marks the 150th birthday of The Nation magazine. To commemorate this historic anniversary, we are proud to present a conversation about our country's inequality crisis, a pressing issue impacting millions of Americans, and a core nation issue on which the magazine has long been sounding the alarm. The wealth controlled by the top tenth of the top one percent has more than doubled over the past 30 years in the United States, approaching unprecedented levels. San Francisco, where we are holding today's program, most certainly symbolizes the inequality issue. The city has been racked by battles over development, a homeless population that spills onto its sidewalks, rocketing housing costs and increases in crime. With its gleaming new buildings and influx of Silicon Valley wealth, San Francisco has the fastest growing income inequality gap in the nation. So what does this inequality mean for the political process, for the environment, living wages and immigrant rights, and in turn for civil society and the future of our democracy? Tonight, we will have a conversation with four prominent experts about key problems afflicting America through the lens of the unprecedented concentration of wealth in the United States today. And now, please welcome our panelists. First, Robert Reich is Chancellor's Professor of Public Policy at the University of California at Berkeley and Senior Fellow at the Blum Center for Developing Economies. He served as Secretary of Labor in the Clinton administration and was named by Time Magazine as one of the 10 most effective cabinet secretaries of the 20th century. His latest book is Saving Capitalism for the Many, Not the Few. Please welcome Robert Reich. Welcome. Oh, wow. 
Ai-jen Pu is director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance and co-director of the Caring Across Generations campaign. She was a 2014 MacArthur genius and was named one of the world's most 100 influential people by Time magazine. She is a 2013 World Economic Forum Young Global Leader and author of The Age of Dignity, Preparing for the Elder Boom in a Changing America. Please welcome Ai Jan Poo. Van Jones is an environmental advocate, civil rights activist, and he is the co-founder of four nonprofit organizations, including Rebuild the Dream, of which he is president. He is also a CNN political contributor. Van is a Yale-educated lawyer, and in 2009, worked as the Green Jobs Advisor to President Obama. He is the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Rebuild the Dream. Please welcome Van Jones. Right, my friend. Our final panelist, Katrina Vanden Heuvel, is the editor and publisher of The Nation. She is a frequent commentator on TV and radio, the author of numerous books, and a weekly online columnist for The Washington Post. Her blog appears at thenation.com. Please welcome Katrina Vanden Heuvel. So we're going to start our conversation with a question I'm going to just throw out to all of you. Uh, in a 2014 Pew survey, inequality was America's top choice for greatest threat to the world. All of the presidential candidates, Democrat and Republican, are talking about inequality. i give you a quote here. The rich have gotten richer, income inequality has gotten worse, and there are more people in poverty than ever before. Those words were the words of Mitt Romney. So panelists, are we finally at the tipping point? Are Americans, left and right, rich and poor, of all hues, are we all now in agreement that our economic and political systems are rigged and they have to change? Is all of the anger about inequality now the great unifier? Are all we now, are we about to tip? Jump in. Any uh, no. <laughs> Should I explain? Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I think that uh, the good news is that inequality is something that people are talking about. Uh, I think that after years of seeing inequality widen, uh, the median wage stagnate, uh, the poor and the poverty level uh, be stubbornly high, and the rich get richer, 
Uh, finally, we are getting to a tipping point, even among Republicans, where it's at least expected, we're fashionable to say something about it. Uh, but we are not anywhere near doing anything significant about it. There is one candidate, I believe, who is talking seriously about it, and a few others who are being influenced by him. Uh, but. But I don't want to make this into a partisan forum. Yeah. Uh, my biggest fear, honestly, is that uh, we may be, as a nation, heading into a world war. And war can bring out either the best or the worst in nations. It sometimes can lead to, paradoxically, a great deal of social solidarity. Uh, and some very good things can come out of the horrors of war in terms of the issue of inequality, but it also can bring out some terrible ugliness. Uh, and we've got to watch that very, very carefully. Anybody else? Well, I think I there's do. other good news, which is that everywhere I turn, I see low-wage workers in motion. I see incredible organizing <coughs> among fast food workers, home care workers, domestic workers, You've all heard of the Fight for 15, um, Walmart workers, retail workers, even the baristas at Starbucks. People are coming together, and I think that combined with the incredible vibrancy of the movement for black lives, there is this sense of collective self-confidence, I think, that people who are on the front lines of inequality in this country are starting to express that we actually can turn the tide on this and that we are going to come together and build the kind of movement necessary to do so. Mm. And that to me is the best news um, in this situation. And Frances Fox Piven, uh, the great historian of social movements told me not long ago that she does believe that we are in the early stages of what will be the next great social protest movement of this country that will fundamentally transform democracy for all of us. And you know, she's right about a lot of things. So I'm gonna go with that. Well. Well, well, first of all, uh, congratulations. Thank you. Um, yes. I just want to. I'm not 150, but thank you. <laughs> <laughs> but um, if it had gone out on your watch, we'd be talking bad about you. So congratulations. <laughs> um, and um, you know, I, I think that uh, you're right. There's an agreement about problem, not agreement about solution. But there are right-wing populisms that are very interesting now in their willingness to take this on. Um, they use terms different than those that are familiar to us, but you hear right-wingers now talking about what they call crony capitalism, and that's their way of, of, of talking about the way that the government has been captured to uh, protect big corporations at the expense of working people. So there's, uh, I think there's a growing agreement and frankly growing militancy on the right and on the left. The problem is that the solutions put forward by the right would make things worse. Um, I also think that when you uh, listen to uh, the, the orange guy, uh, Trump. The orange guy. <laughs> Not Boehner, the orange yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah. um, 
When you listen to him, um, there's something interesting happening where uh, there's a style of politics that could be a precursor to something. In other words, this I just don't give a dadgum anymore. I'm just not going to be polite. Now, they're doing it on the right, so we don't like it. But there's something that's happening where people who before felt both on the left and the right constrained, there's just not enough uh, cookies on the table now for people to be polite. The temperature is going up for both the right and the left. So I do think that uh, the income inequality debate and discussion is something uh, we should be very, very um, observant for opportunities on the, on the right that we might find more uh, uh, exciting than the ones we see right now. So I, I agree with everything that's been said. I, would, I think the rules are being rewritten in different ways on the left and on the right. And at the heart of it, I think we're witnessing a discredited, failed status quo. Mm -hmm. This Washington consensus inside the Beltway consensus of deregulation, of corporate trade agreements, of uh, failure to make public investments, of mandatory sentencing. All of this is coming under scrutiny and question. You see it in Bernie Sanders' campaign. You see it in Donald Trump's in different ways. The question is where? Where will it head? Because it is no question a time of upheaval. And around the world, there are movements, like movements you're describing, both hopeful and not hopeful, whether it's in Greece and Spain or in Canada. But where it will end is going to require political power and movements. Well, let's pick up on that, because let's pick up on the political power, power. issue. So first of all, I, this talk about inequality, it's been around for years. I mean, in the 1930s, um, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis once noted, we can have a democracy or we can have great wealth in the hands of a few, but we cannot have both. And in 1956, The Nation published an article by W.E.B. Du Bois in which he wrote, corporate wealth profits as never before in history. We turn over the national resources to private profit and have few funds left for education, health, or housing. So if we talk about politics, there's a boatload of money in the lobbying industry. In 2013, if we just talk about Silicon Valley, Apple spent $3.3 in lobbying. That's just in 2013. Amazon, 3.4. Facebook, 6.4. Microsoft, 10.4. And Google spent $15.8 all to influence politicians in Washington. So, do we, don't we have to rein in lobbying to achieve income inequality? And if so, how do we do that? We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Hey. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. 
So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Uh, well, the answer is, uh, clearly we do, and we have to get big money out of politics. We have to reverse Citizens United. Uh, we have to make sure that there is... public financing of all campaigns, and also make sure that there's full disclosure of wherever the money is coming from. It's easy to say what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. It is extremely hard to get the power to do it because you see, we face a chicken and egg problem. The people with power don't want fundamentally to lose power, and they fear that any fundamental change in how politics is financed would be a threat to them. Uh, so let's go back to the issue of populism, because it really is the core question here. Uh, we see on the right and the left upheavals, angry, uh, frustrated, anxious people all across America and also across Europe uh, and many other places around the globe. This is not just an American problem. Uh, but the question is how that anger mm -hmm. is utilized. What political leaders and political movements and political organization is going to do with that anger? Uh, and this is the great challenge, it seems to me, because if we are facing a common threat in the form of radical jihadism, whatever you want to call it, that anger can be turned into something positively, maybe creative, or it can be turned into fierce xenophobia and racism. Uh, and ethnic exclusivity. Uh, we have got to take a leadership role in making sure that that anger is channeled in a positive direction. And everybody in this hall has got to do exactly the same thing. Anyone else? Oh, I want to say a couple things about this. I mean, first of all, from an African-American perspective, that's an African-American, not the, but an African-American perspective, um, the conversation about inequality uh, starts with mass incarceration. It, it, it starts there. And then moves to the rest of it. And I think it's very important to understand that, you know, uh, Aijin mentioned the movement for black lives. I think that this is one of the most important developments uh, of our time. Mm -hmm. Um, a lot of people got mad because some kids grabbed some microphones or whatever, and that's their only point of reference, and they had, felt like they had to defend Bernie Sanders until the deal. Missing the entire movie. Mm -hmm. Missing the entire movie. Uh, you now have a generation of African Americans who are coming on the scene 
They were 12 years old when Obama got in the office, 13, 14. They're not impressed with having a Negro president. They're not impressed with having a Democratic Party that will say stuff. They are facing uh, incarceration rates that are six times their peers when they're doing the same things as their peers. In other words, black kids and white kids do drugs the same amount. But white kids are, black kids go to prison six times more than their white peers. And nobody's done anything about it. And you have a view of the state mm -hmm. that the state itself does a better job of punishing than protecting. The state itself does a better job of, of uh, hurting people than helping people. And that they see violence from the government inside the U.S. borders in the form of mass incarceration. Their peers see it at the U.S. border in the form of mass deportations. And all the young people see it beyond the U.S. border in the form of militarization. And so you have a, a, a seamless web of violence from the government that somehow does not protect them from the street-level violence, but it just enhances it. And no one's speaking for them. And then you have a Democratic Party that wants to open its mouth to talk about income inequality, but won't, until very recently, speak of these issues as integral to the fight. You can't have income inequality if you've been labeled a felon for doing what your kids are doing in college right now and what some of you were doing this weekend. <laughs> you, 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 you can't have income inequality if you've been labeled a felon, you can't get a job, you can't get a student loan, you can't get an apartment, you can't get a business license. And so for those young people to hear a Democratic Party after seven plus years of Obama, still, you know, still not dealing with it, my, I was very impressed by them. The only force in American politics besides Hillary Clinton that both political parties had to address in their debates was Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter was started by three young women, a couple of whom work with you, um, with nothing but their pain in a hashtag. And they forced both parties to deal with them. We should celebrate that first, second, and third before we critique them at all. Let, let me just pick up just, just very briefly on this. So, you know, it appears that race is the weapon of choice by those who want to maintain the status quo and draw attention away from inequality. Because, I mean, if you listen, Donald Trump's battle cry is, let's make America great again. Uh, that's just dog whistle politics, mm -hmm. isn't it not? Isn't it code for let's make America white again? Um, so the question is, is the Black Lives Matter movement focusing enough on income and wealth inequality? Should it be doing more in that area? This is for anybody. You... No, I don't think they should be doing more. I, 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 you have a Democratic Party. I just want to... Do you think there's one Democratic Party, though? Because I think what's emerged in the last years, post Occupy, post-crash, and I might even argue post-Obama, is that there has been a war within the Democratic Party, the war between the Wall Street wing and the more corporate establishment wing, which often both wings have failed to take into account what you're talking about, though you could argue that if activism has any worth, 
carrots and sticks, the sticks applied rightly to Bernie Sanders this summer, or even the consciousness raising done for Elizabeth, I mean, Senator Warren, people are speaking in new yeah. ways, but that battle goes on and it's gonna determine, to a certain extent, the direction of the inequality discussion in this country. Well, the way I, I see it, and I'd, I'd love to get the views of others, but the way that I see it is that uh, the visible fight in the party is between the Wall Street wing and the white economic populist. And I don't mean white in some derogatory, I just mean if you look at the rallies, it's, 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 it's those are majority white rallies. The problem that you have is that at the end of the day, the Republicans and the right wing of the Democrats want black people to settle for trickle-down economics. And the left wing of the Democratic Party wants us, wanted us to settle for trickle-down justice. In other words, you shut up, we're not going to say black, we're not going to talk about your issues, we're not going to talk about prisons, we're not going to talk, you shut up. We are going to talk about taxing Wall Street, fixing Social Security, and income inequality. And you'll get yours, don't worry. And not invest in schools, and, and, not prisons, or exactly. give families and, a second and not third even, chance after Exactly, prisons. and not even, to your point, and not even raising the slogans of schools, not jails, right. not raising the slogans of ending mass incarceration, not raising the slogans of speaker name, and as a result, you have a third leg in the progressive movement, which is the racial justice leg, which has no home and has no candidate. And you're talking about the dreamers on the Latino side, the Black Lives Matter movement, you're talking about I don't know more among Native Americans. You have a racial justice third wing of the party with no candidate and no voice and not even the pretense of a black candidate to mask all of that, and they exploded into public view. Mm -hmm. And I think they brought out, frankly, the best in both wings. And I have to say, I was very, very proud of those young people and very, very proud of the way that Bernie Sanders himself righted himself and responded with fun. such compassion. He, it took, he was taken aback, but he responded with compassion. And I think these young people have brought out the best in both wings of the party. And I no longer hear trickle-down justice from the white progressive populace. And I think that's a very, very healthy thing that they achieved. Mm -hmm. So, well, I, go, go ahead. I, I think that what has happened is that, and again, I don't know precisely what's going on inside any campaign or inside the, the Washington precincts of the Democratic Party, but I think that gradually a dawning realization is occurring that if you have progressives, and they are white progressives, uh, they can't maintain or get an electoral majority, but if you have the progressives, along with people of color, Latinos and blacks, you can actually create a majority in America. And that coalition, if you actually can generate that coalition, is a winning coalition. Now what the Democrats have done since Franklin D. Roosevelt was to exclude African Americans, mm -hmm. very consciously, very carefully. That was FDR's coalition. Uh, that was the white working class uh, and whoever else he could find to muster, uh, and a very, very direct exclusion of the Southern uh, African-Americans, the Southern blacks. Uh, that has been the policy of the Democratic Party all the way up until, I would say, uh, Bill Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton tried to have a larger coalition, but the error of Bill Clinton was Katrina, was bringing in and making an alliance with the Wall Street Democrats. Yeah, yeah. And that undermined everything else. That made it very difficult to actually create a new progressive movement. So the question for the Democrats and the question for Hillary Clinton 
and for Bernie Sanders and anybody else, Martin O'Malley, uh, is whether they are willing to abandon the Wall Street part of their coalition and join in a new winning coalition with people of color. That is the central strategic question. And to my mind, the only way we get any kind of change in America is if the Democrats choose the latter, not the former. So if you have these coalitions, let's say we can actually get people together, voting is the bottom line. Voting is critical to an egalitarian society. And that said, in America, low voter turnout, turnout is the rule, not the exception. Um, Bernie Sanders wants everyone to be automatically registered to vote at age 18. Uh, but that still doesn't address the issue of getting people to actually vote. In Australia, people are fined for not voting. So given how low, so given how low our voter turnout is in this country, should we do the same? Should we penalize people for not voting? Or are there other ways to get people to go to the polls? Judge, I would begin, I'd flip it a little. I think the crisis we're witnessing is something related to what Bob just spoke about, which is there isn't a where and van and Ajahn Poo, but the, the coalition that, the rising American coalition, the Republicans, the right, <coughs> sees that, and they are doing everything in their power to suppress the vote, to suppress this coming shift in our country's demography, destiny, politics. The money that is pouring into suppressing the vote is staggering, it is akin to uh, a new poll tax to a, a Jim Crow. Uh, I think it will take movements to get out the vote. I'm not in favor of mandatory voting. I can be persuaded, but I'm thinking if you, Reverend Barber in North Carolina, Moral Mondays, has made a commitment to devote his movement to get out the vote, multiracial, multi-justice, multi-issue, and toward what he calls a third reconstruction. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. I'm Heclina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years. And uh, over the past couple of months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need to, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time. So you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. 
I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? That's just always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. The civil rights movement of the 60s having been the second. And in that third reconstruction, rallying people, not only in North Carolina, but he is going to travel this country, speaking about everything from health care to... Um, mandatory minimums to justice to mass incarceration to fast food workers so i just think there's something in that motion but we should be aware of the money that has been pumped in and that should be disclosed my last point i think all contributions to super PAC should be hundred percent taxable and the money should go to universal voter registration this state has done a good thing <laughs> does, does anyone on the panel here think that voting should be mandatory I certainly don't. I think people will vote when they have something to vote for. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, I, I think that part of it is a question of the agenda. And if we could create an agenda for the future of this country where the full diversity of who we are and who we're becoming as a nation and our interests and how they're interconnected could be articulated and reflected back and a very compelling agenda that's not imprisoned by the politics of the possible, but actually about what people need mm -hmm. in this country to not only survive, but to thrive. And not just some people, all people. And I think when we have that agenda, we will see a desire to engage in a different way. So, um both of my grandmothers were the help. Uh, they had low wages, they had no health care, they had one day off a week, it was a Thursday, long days. Um, today's domestic workers include large numbers of immigrant women who, unlike my grandmothers, had organizations like iGen's National Domestic Workers Alliance to advocate for them. So iGen, your focus, and, and Van, yours as well, has been upon grassroots organizing. But there are some who believe that this is the wrong approach and that the way to think about eradicating inequality is by looking down, not up. So a conservative pundit recently said the following, the problem in America is not wealth, but persistent poverty. Don't punish the rich, help the poor become richer. You know, like the song we all heard at the beginning from Finian's Rainbow, make the idle poor become the idle rich. Um, so, Ai-jen, what, what's your, your view on that? Are, are, is grassroots going about it the wrong way? Hmm. Uh, well, so, ever since the 1930s, when 
our labor laws were put into place as part of the New Deal, and a deal was cut. Um, Southern members of Congress refused to sign on to the National Labor Relations Act and the Fair Labor Standards Act if they included farm workers and domestic workers who were black workers at the time. Robert mentioned this. And those bills were passed with those, in, those exclusions in place in a concession to those Southern members of Congress. And so for more than 75 years, domestic workers and farm workers have been excluded from the core foundation of our labor protections. And the only thing that has changed that over time, more than seven decades, the only thing that has changed that is domestic workers organizing at the grassroots level, led by Dorothy, yes. yes. The first round was in the 70s, a domestic worker from Atlanta named Dorothy Bolden, a black woman, courageous national heroine, uh, led the National Domestic Workers Union and won inclusion of some domestic workers and minimum wage protections. And this generation of domestic workers who's organizing in 30 cities around the country today has won domestic worker bills of rights in six states in the last five years. So we are indeed changing policy and the course of history through grassroots organizing, and that really has been the only thing that has worked. So that's what I would say to them. Ben? Well, first of all, I think we should give a round of applause to Aisha for her incredible work. You know, I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't dare to add to, to what she said. Um, there's just not going to be, uh, and you've already seen it, uh, even liberal elites uh, like ourselves uh, just don't have the fingertips for what's really going on all too often. So we're often trying to solve the wrong problem for the, at the wrong time. And you need, whether you talk about Occupy Wall Street, mm -hmm or the movement for black lives, or this new labor movement that's coming up is breaking all the rules. I mean, everybody applauds Aisha now. Uh, I hope I'm not offending anybody, but you were not the darling of progressives uh, three or four years ago when you were driving these you know, young, brown, immigrant uh, women uh, into the halls of power. That was very weird. Uh, <laughs> And people didn't know what to make of it. And people poo-pooed it and they were patronizing and all of a sudden you won in four, three or four states mm -hmm. and extended more rights to more people than anybody, your, your movement, not you personally, but your movement extended more rights to more people quicker than anything that's happened in the past 40 years. And uh, possible exception of, of the farm workers. Um, this is what happens when the people who are at the boot heel stand up. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think, uh, you know, we got a bunch of young people here from the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights and other places. Look, when I was young, pissed off with, you know, dreadlocks and, you know, cops bothering me, uh, my ideas were much more militant. Uh, you know, now I'm, you know, old and on TV and cops are nice to me. <laughs> and, and, I, and I find myself, I'm serious, I find myself kind of in that very frustrating, well, you know, on the one hand or on the other hand. And then these Black Lives Matter kids came and kicked us all in the butt and said, screw you, we're getting messed over. So I just think that there's something to be said for 
the contribution that's made by people who have an actual dog in a race. Hillary Clinton does not want a system that will provide a free college education for everyone. This, she said, I don't want to pay for the education of Donald Trump's children. Well, neither do I. Um, but is she on to something, or should college or vocational education be free for all? And other countries do it, so why not here? Well, I, I think that it's very important in terms of the, building the kind of coalition we're talking about mm -hmm. uh, and gaining the kind of grassroots support we're talking about uh, to seek a kind of a system in which not only is public higher education free, and I don't think Donald Trump's children would go to public higher education institutions, <laughs> uh, but also that we have a single-payer healthcare system. This is very important. Now, we not, may not be able to get this next week or next year or in a couple of years, but it's something to aspire to. It builds and enlarges social solidarity. It creates the kind of links between the poor and the middle class, between blacks and whites and Latinos, between Americans uh, generally, uh, that can support this kind of set of institutions. Uh, and uh, the fight is going to be long and bitter and difficult, uh, but building on something that <coughs> you said before, uh, I've just returned from several weeks in red America, in red states and red cities. You may wonder what I was doing there. What was I? <laughs> I, was, I was trying to flog a book. Uh, I didn't do very well in the red states or red cities, but what I did discover, I, I, I had a meeting with a bunch of small farmers in, in, uh, in Missouri uh, who were organizing against some of the big agribusinesses and factory farms. These small farmers called themselves conservative Republicans, but they were organizing against what they considered to be and were, in fact, some of the forces that were systematically eating away at their profits and destroying the environment. You know, I met with small business leaders, uh, not only in stature, no, they were actually tall, some of them, but they were... <laughs> But there were small business leaders and franchisees in Cincinnati, and they were organizing against some of the big businesses and big franchisors who were, again, undermining their profits and monopolizing. Uh, and across the red America, I kept on running into people who were organizing against the powerful, the wealthy, yeah. the monopolists. Uh, and uh, the fight for 15 people that I met in St. Louis and in Kansas City are doing exactly the same thing. And these people have got to be linked up. Uh, the moral majority, the moral Monday people, not majority, moral Monday people. They are people the true moral majority. Who, in, <laughs> who I met in Raleigh. They are also beginning to link up with some of these conservative Republican groups about the same issues of power and wealth. So I think there is a transpartisan movement here to be built on. And you've been writing about it, Bob, because I think one of, there's so much in our history we could retrieve. There's so much radical history which is why when Bernie Sanders talks about Denmark, I have no problem with Denmark, because would we retrieve some of that history in our own country? But the idea of trust busting, we need to revive that. The idea, I think if you recall years ago, in the fight against media concentration, 
and for media democracy, a fight the nation was very central to. You had Trent Lott aligning with Code Pink because both didn't like the big, the bigness. They wanted localism and diversity. And I think there's a real suspicion of bigness, of corporate bigness, that if the Tea Party hadn't been so racist, you could have found some possible alliances there. But you've written about this. I'm not sure I fully agree, but you're saying that the future of American politics is between the establishment and the anti-establishment? Well, we find, we, we you know, find, it's, I'm, I'm thinking they're within well, look, the age. And there, and there are, and but as the we bigness. said, there are two anti-establishments now right. vying and for And that's interesting. And that's but we're finding, I mean, we're finding um, in the work that I do, I mean, there's, there's something called the green tea movement. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on on Facebook. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. On the Progressive Voices Facebook page, we update the stories that our hosts like Tom Hartman, Stephanie Miller, Bill Press, and Leslie Marshall will be talking about during their shows. And we share great news, commentaries, opinion pieces, and videos from all over the progressive world. Always progressive, always on. Be part of the progressive conversation. Like us at facebook.com forward slash progressive voices. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Is that right? <laughs> I know about the coffee, the coffee party. No, but <laughs> no, the, no the coffee party is liberal. And the black, and the black tea movement. Oh, well, that, that's, a, uh, the oh, that's an Oakland. Um, <laughs> the <green> but, tea. <laughs> um, no, there's, there's, we're, we're allied with them in Green for All. There's the green tea movement and the argument that they make is, I think, very compelling. Uh, shouldn't every American uh, have the right and the liberty to power their own homes with their own power? That's interesting. Without, be, without being bossed and dictated to by utility companies that will tell you when you're going to pay your energy bill, how much it's going to cost, how many asthma inhalers you're going to have in your community as a result of it, and yet you don't have that right in America. And so there's a green tea movement of Tea Party people saying, we're tired of being bossed and, and, and dominated by government monopoly uh, power companies telling us that we can't power our own homes with solar and sell that power on a public grid. That's one thing on the criminal justice side. I think it's very important to understand this. Uh, we're working very closely with the far right and the hard right on criminal justice issues. Uh, Newt Gingrich and I uh, pulled together a, a, a you laugh, yeah, but Newt Gingrich and I <laughs> pulled together a summit. We said if we get 100 leaders together, in Washington, D.C., left and right, for one hour on criminal justice, we could change everything. We didn't get 100. We got 700 for seven hours in March, including 10 congresspeople, three governors, two cabinet secretaries, and President Obama sent a video, and that was in March. In February, people said criminal justice reform was impossible. Now they say it's inevitable because it turns out that there's a conservative critique mm -hmm that says prisons are a big failed government bureaucracy that gobble up money and liberties and do a horrible job. Uh, from a Christian point of view, they don't treat every soul with respect and there's no redemption possible. And from a libertarian point of view, they're the enemy of individual liberty. You say, well, I don't trust these guys. And I say, well, hold on a second, who do you trust? I can point to three Republican governors, Deal in Georgia, closing prisons, Perry in Texas, closing prisons, 
Kasich in Ohio trying to close prisons. I can't name one Democratic governor in the country that's closed a prison, including your governor, Jerry Brown. Cuomo. Uh, uh, Cuomo. I'm not a fan, but Cuomo. Uh, Cuomo got pulled into uh, kicking and screaming uh, a, a compromise that would have been much better had he led on it. Um, but, but even Deval Patrick, even Jerry Brown. My point is, this is just echoing and underscoring what's been said earlier. There, there, there's, the, the temperature's rising. And there's a liberty and justice for all mm -hmm. moment here. Liberty, that's the Republican, limited government, all that sort of stuff. Justice, that's us, don't pick on little people. There's a liberty and justice for all moment coming that I do think that we might find some areas of overlap. So you're listening to the Commonwealth Club of California program. Tonight's program is co-presented by The Nation magazine in commemoration of their 150th anniversary, and we are discussing inequality in America. Our speakers are Robert Reich, professor and former U.S. Secretary of Labor, Ai-jen Poo, director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance, Van Jones, former White House Special Advisor for Green Jobs and CNN commentator, and Katrina Van de Heuvel, editor and publisher of The Nation. I am Ladaris Cordell, retired judge of the Superior Court of California, former police auditor for the city of San Jose, and your moderator. And you can hear Commonwealth Club programs on the radio, catch up with us on Facebook and Twitter, and see program videos on our YouTube channel. We're at a point where we want to go to questions that have been submitted from the audience, but before we do that, um, let's do a quick inequality jeopardy round. So I, I'm going to give a quote about inequality to you all up here, and you tell us who said it. And remember, your answer has to be in the form of a question. Um, so, and, and if you don't know for sure the answer, just Take a good guess at it, it'll be fine. All right, here we go. First quote, a Republicans are for both the man and the dollar, but in case of conflict, the man before the dollar. <laughs> Take a guess. Ted Cruz. <laughs> All right. Anybody else? All right, the answer? Andrew Carnegie, no. The answer? Abraham Lincoln. Oh, you guessed. You All right. Well, it's, it's almost Ted Cruz. Oh. It has a. <laughs> <laughs> All right, next one. I yeah, guess, if you I... can't get rich dealing with politicians, then there's something wrong with you. Will, Willie Brown. Willie Brown, he said. <laughs> That's good. That's good. <laughs> you, be, you be careful. You know what city you're in. You just be careful. Close. The answer Donald Trump. Uh, oh. Two more. Last, next one. The law in its majestic equality forbids the rich as well as the poor from sleeping under bridges, begging on the streets, and stealing bread. Anatole Told France. Great. Anatole France. Bingo. Yeah. Very good. Last one. Those are my... <laughs> yeah. Last one. Those are my principles. And if you don't like them, well, I have others. Anybody? Richard Nixon. Groucho Marx. All right. So now we will turn to questions um, from you Groucho all. Marx. Um, questions for you all. How do we give individuals enough power to be effective, but not enough to be corrupted? Okay. Okay. Can we give a lifeline to Dalton Henderson? <laughs> <laughs> 
We have one, one of the great, uh, we should give a round of applause, one of the great. Federal Judge Felton uh, Henderson. Uh, Judge Felton. Thank you. Give a round of applause. For Who is the epitome of justice. Yeah. Absolutely. So how do we give people power, but not too much? It, look, it's all in the balance. Um, and I'd, I'd love to actually hear, um, I think you had some ideas from our early, early discussion, but listen, this, this is a dynamic system. Uh, people want to figure out, you know, you know, geez, you talk to these young people, you know, I, I voted in 2008 and everything didn't get fixed, I, I quit. <laughs> I mean, this is a dynamic system we're going to be continuing to interact with and, and, and try to improve and learning from for hopefully another thousand years. And so there is no one single answer or one single thing, because even if you fix it today, there's new technologies and new trickery tomorrow. And, it, and, that's, and democracy is a practice, it's not, a, it's not an end state. Mr. Rice, didn't you write in your book that it really isn't corruption, right? Didn't you say it's just people making rules? Yes, I mean, the new form of corruption is, in fact, uh, mostly very big institutions, large corporations, uh, Wall Street, uh, and also some very wealthy individuals who are buying their way into American politics in the form of changing the rules the way of the market, the way the market actually functions. Uh, they don't think of themselves as corrupt, they think that's just the way they have to lobby in order to maintain themselves and uh, obey the principles of fiduciary obligation to their shareholders, but that's, it's actually undermining the entire, the entire system. Uh, but you're, back to your question, uh, Your Honor. May I call you Your Honor? I love it. Please do. By the way, can, <laughs> can, 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 we, can we, as long as we're passing around appreciation, let, let me just appreciate you. Your public service has been exemplary. And thank you. I just want to take a moment to recognize Katrina Vanden Heuvel. Yeah. Thank you. For your Thank you. You are a hero. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Arjun. Well, thanks to our panelists, Robert Reich, professor and former U.S. Secretary of Labor. That was great. That was great. Always. Thanks to Ai-jin Poo, director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Thank you to Van Jones, former White House special advisor for Green Jobs. And thank you to Katrina Vanden Heuvel, editor and publisher of The Nation. We also thank everyone in attendance tonight. Tonight's program has been co-presented by The Nation magazine, the conscience of our country for 150 years and counting. I am Judge Ladaris Cordell, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club of California, the place where you are in the know, is adjourned. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week -week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
Thanks so much for tuning in today. For more on us and other programs or podcasts you might have missed, you can head to michellemeow.com. See you all next week. to the Michelle Miao Show weekdays at 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 Eastern on Progressive Voices.